I'm starting right now. Great. Okay, I'll start my recording too. Hello, Slava Connection listeners. This is Katya. In this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Dr. Siobhan Hearn about her new book called Policing Prostitution, Regulating the Lower Classes in Late Imperial Russia, which is a social history of prostitution in the last decades of the Russian Empire. Dr. Hearn is a historian of gender and sexuality in the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union in the School of Modern Languages and Cultures at Durham University. In this episode, we discuss how prostitution and diseases were linked to national security, how discussions of prostitution and the transmission of venereal diseases often became outlets for anti-Semitic, racist, and discriminatory rhetoric, and much, much more. Hope you enjoy. It's not a typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Alrighty, Dr. Hearn, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you very much for having me. So my first question for you is, benching your research interests for a moment, what drew you to studying this area of the world you know, in general? What, what drew you to Russia, uh, to the Baltics? So I started studying Russian history when I was still at school, when I was 16. Um, in the UK, we do these exams to get into university called A-levels, the standardized tests that you take in specific subjects at the age of 18. You start studying for them at the age of 16. And I just had this absolutely wonderful history teacher who taught us the Russian revolutions with such energy and enthusiasm. I was just completely hooked from that point. And then I started reading Russian literature and translation. And then a little bit later, traveling to Russia. And then I decided to, to do postgraduate study and learn the language as well. And with the Baltics, that is an interest that developed during my PhD research that I was conducting. I ended up going to the National Archives of Estonia and the Latvian State Historical Archives to conduct PhD research there. And again, I had a fantastic time, so I decided to keep coming back. Moving on to your research interests, how did you become interested in studying sex work or prostitution, particularly in this specific time frame that the book's written in and that you've published other articles in as well? So this interest came from when I was at university. So I studied English literature and history um, for my undergraduate degree. And I was just really drawn to modules about gender and sexuality. And then this sort of long-standing interest in Russian history and especially the history of the Russian revolutions came along with me too. So when it was the time to pick what I wanted to write my undergraduate dissertation on, I was clustering those interests together and it was actually a comparative study of prostitution in the pre-revolutionary and post-revolutionary periods, which then became my PhD thesis and then became a book. So I've been <laughs> reading this sort of stuff for quite a long time now. Yeah, that's amazing. I just had a quick question. So just on terminology, I guess, sex work, prostitution, do you have a preference? It is a really, really important question. And I think terminology is so important because the terms that we can use can often reinforce stigma. That is absolutely not the intention of the researcher most of the time. If I'm talking about contemporary prostitution, I would use the term sex work and sex workers. But because I'm talking about the late Russian empire, I feel that sex work would be a little bit anachronistic here because we can't necessarily access the motivations of the women who engaged in prostitution, whether they actually perceived what they were doing as sex work. And the women who were engaging in paid sex then didn't have the sort of technology to form organizations that we have today. So I always try and use the terms woman engaged in prostitution or woman identified as a prostitute 
by the authorities or a woman engaged in paid sex, rather than trying to ascribe a label to someone when I can't necessarily understand how they would have represented themselves. Right. That makes sense. As I was reading your book, I was just kind of thinking about that, choosing the the terminology of prostitution versus sex work. Um, That's really interesting. And I think that that points to something that you write about in your book. I can't remember the quote off the top of my head, but this kind of, it's another author that you quote, not romanticizing a prostitution and saying that these women, you know, had complete agency all of the time. But also not making these women who are engaged in engaged in prostitution, not turning them into victims as well. Kind of this middle ground. It's not completely black and white. It's kind of this gray area. But going on to my next question. So your book, Policing Prostitution, Regulating the Lower Classes in Late Imperial Russia, is a social political history of sex work, I guess you could say, in the last decades of the empire. And it was shaped by the experiences that were going, outer experiences that were going on in various parts of the empire. And I kind of wanted to ask you about, you know, there are already, there are works on prostitution in Imperial Russia. The one author that you you cite, I'm familiar with, Laurie Bernstein, Sonia's Daughters, comes to mind. Um, but of course, that's, you know, that isn't all-encompassing and that doesn't even touch the breadth of all that work done. But what motivated you to write this book, something that you just were itching to contribute? So I read Laurie Bernstein's book when I was an undergraduate and I absolutely loved it. And it's certainly what started my path on doing this research. I found that when I was reading Laurie Bernstein's amazing book and also other really fantastic studies that were written about prostitution in the 1990s and sometimes into the early 2000s, is that the focus is often on the state and medical experts, how they felt about prostitution, how they sought to police it, and the different techniques that they used and the partnerships sometimes between medical authorities and the police. While I found this absolutely fascinating, I really wanted to understand what people who were working within, using, encountering the commercial sex industry on a daily basis felt about the system of regulation in the Russian Empire and what were their lives like and what were their challenges that they experienced. So this social history angle is the kind of new thing that I was bringing perhaps to the literature, but it's definitely building on a really solid base of historiography that was started in the early 1990s and and still continues today. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of contributing this new aspect, something that you emphasize in your book is kind of branching outside of Russia's two capitals. So looking beyond the metropoles of St. Petersburg and Moscow. And so I just kind of want, in your own words, why was this important for your work? And perhaps why is it important to think about how prostitution is shaded differently in these vastly different places that were tied together through belonging to the same empire? That's a great question, actually. And I think that prostitution is a new avenue for showing us this rich diversity across the empire and especially the diversity in policing practices. I guess for me, it comes from this overall desire to understand how people experienced regulation. So for that, I had to go to regional archives because the documentation is far richer than what you find in the central archives, I believe, in, in terms of this particular period with regards to prostitution. And as I was in the archives, I was finding that not only the economic and social context of the region influenced prostitution, but also the environmental context. So just to give one very brief example, one of my case studies is the city of Arkhangelsk in um, the north, a couple of miles outside the Arctic Circle. And in this particular city, the authorities really did understand prostitution as a seasonal endeavor in ways that wasn't really seen in other parts of the empire. And this is because of the environment. The port city, the port freezes over for five months of the year when this severe Arctic winter sets in. 
and women who were registered on the police lists were able to just deregister as prostitutes temporarily and go to the interior provinces in search of work and then come back again once the, pre- um, once the port had thawed. And I found this so interesting and this motivated me to do more case studies, go to different regions and find out what was influencing prostitution policy there. I also think it's important because it's important to challenge this idea of the totalizing, all-encompassing imperial state. And again, this is something that people have been doing for decades. There's absolutely fantastic literature on this topic across all of the different portions of the Russian Empire. So my contribution is doing this through this lens of the regulation of prostitution and sexuality more generally. So to obscure this image of centralized, all-encompassing control that the center was very keen in, in projecting and looking at how things were actually working on the ground. Yes, that's absolutely true. I, I see that in my work as well. I'm, I'm vaguely or tangentially interested in the like regional branches, ge- geographical societies, um, the Siberian branch specifically, and kind of how they tried to systematize the geographical um, societies and the institutions that they worked with, but it just couldn't happen just because of how vast the empire was, which I think is just fascinating. But returning to what you were talking about with Arkhangelsk, So it seems that in Arkhangelsk, it was really quite easy to deregister from being a prostitute, which wasn't always the same across the board, because you talk about how women had to write in to authorities and lobby for themselves and had to have oftentimes a man or someone in in a position of authority vouch for them. I wanted to ask about mobility because this is a really key topic in your book and kind of, I guess it ties in with like fluidity and mobility. So the the ease with which people can deregister in some places and not so much in other places. Prostitutes traveled and women who became migrants and were displaced. You know, there was a link between that kind of movement and and going into prostitution. And then many men who paid for sex um, were soldiers or sailors or itinerant workers at various places at varying times. And there was this whole regime, that passport regime, that would control people's movements. So all of this touches on the book's subtitle of regulating the lower classes. Can you tell us a bit more about how regulation of commercial sex work reflected these wider desire to regulate the bodies and behaviors of these lower class people? Absolutely, yeah. And I'm really glad that you brought up mobility and migration because that is a really central theme of the book, mainly because women who engaged in paid sex, the ones that were registered with the police, the vast majority were migrants from the countryside who ended up in urban centers and then registered as a prostitute for either temporary or more longer period of time. So to to return to this question about regulation, so the system of regulation itself conducts surveillance on the bodies of lower class women through ensuring that they're registered on the police list so their details are readily available to the authorities, but also because registered prostitutes are required to attend bi-weekly gynecological examinations. They're also required to carry a special form of identification called a medical ticket, and the results of these examinations are stamped onto this ticket. So their sexual health is supposed to be available for everybody to see at all times. But it's very important to note here there's a massive gulf between state ambitions and reality. This is the theory here. And then if we look at the the bodies of men and how they're touched by the regulation system, the Russian imperial state was largely really disinterested in men who paid for sex, didn't really care to monitor them in any way or create these statistical surveys to find out men from which ethnicity are paying for sex, from which social class. But certain groups of men were subject to medical intervention. And these were controlled populations, so 
the military is one example of this. Men in the military were also periodically examined in line with similar frequency to registered prostitutes because their health was really important for national security. But also migrant workers were monitored in a similar way. And through paternalistic disease control policies, they required you know, testing clear for venereal diseases before they were able to go back home in the countryside, for example. And another final way in which the regulation of prostitution touches the lives of various groups of lower class people, whether they're paying for sex or selling sex, is through the regulation of brothels. So brothels in the late Russian Empire were obviously places where people paid for sex, but they were also entertainment venues, um, places where registered prostitutes lived, and businesses that contributed to the local economy. And through regulation, the Russian imperial state endeavoured to impose control on these spaces by mandating certain things, like they weren't allowed to play music, they had to have their shutters closed at all times, they were only allowed to be located within certain portions of the city, and also other activities that incur inside them. And again, here, the theory and practice is really important to disentangle because this is what the imperial state endeavours to happen, but what actually happens is very different in practice. Right. So this is kind of you know, talking about the trying to maintain and control the visibility of, of prostitutes and prostitution, but actually not being able to do do that so much. You write in your book, I think there were prostitutes just strolling about in the streets. And because Everywhere. of this, <laughs> as you say, because of this gulf between the aspirations and theory and law and practice, regulation did not work. But I want to talk a little bit about another one of these surveilled groups. You say the military was one of them, but also the peasantry in, in rural areas. If we shift a little bit outside of urban areas, the peasantry were also regulated. And in this instance, it was not only female peasants, but it was also male peasants as well. Could you speak a little bit on how the state regarded this particular group of people regarded them in a very paternalistic way as well as innocent and unaware and in spreading venereal diseases and kind of how this also, you know, links to racism and this colonial frame as well. Absolutely. So one really important thing to note here is in the early 20th century, Russian medical professionals really did think that venereal diseases, especially syphilis, were spread through non-sexual contact. So there's this huge syphilis congress in St. Petersburg in 1897. Can't remember the whole title, it's really long, but it's an anti-syphilis congress, let's say. And at this Congress, the delegates agree that over three quarters of syphilis sufferers across the empire are so-called victims of ignorance and low levels of culture. So this, this is presumably meaning, you know, peasants who live in communal spaces and are passing syphilis to one another through sharing bowls, beds, or just living in very close proximity to one another. So therefore, discussions of venereal disease control were sort of rife with these tropes about the hygienic ignorance um, and backwardness of the Russian Empire's vast peasant population. And often measures proposed to deal with this are very paternalistic and definitely not focused on patient autonomy or confidentiality or any of the things that we would assume would be central to the control of sexually transmitted infections. And then doctors also talk about the 
regions and non-Russian regions of the empire or regions where there's large concentration of other ethnic groups. So I can think of a few examples off the top of my head from the book, um, Estonians and the Yakut population. Doctors claim that syphilis is experienced in these populations at a much higher degree than the Russian population because of their ignorance and backwardness. So it, discussions of VD control are really tinged with these hues of Russian colonialism. And you see that throughout the, the medical profession's discussion of syphilis in this period. Yeah, I was particularly interested in this linking of, of people to diseases just because of their ethnicity. I found this quite interesting. In your book, you mentioned it briefly. I'm, I'm actually Saha Yakut. And I've, I've heard about these studies of syphilis in, in, in the region, and I've read some stuff about it as well. And it's just really interesting that you not only have this othering of people in terms of socioeconomic status, I guess, or class, but you also have this othering in terms of racial othering, right, or ethnic othering, which I think is quite interesting. You also talk about how conversations around venereal disease and and prostitution were also outlets for these broader, like you said, tinged with racist tropes and whatnot. But I was wondering if you could speak a little more about how discussions of prostitution were also outlets for anti-Semitic rhetoric and it didn't only target the women who sold sex, but those who facilitated it, which includes madams of brothels and also procurers. Definitely. Yeah, this is a really key theme here, mainly because around the turn of the 20th century, this moral panic explodes across Europe and North America, known as the white slave panic or the trade in women, as it's known in Russian. This moral panic was surrounding the apparent widespread procurement of young white women for prostitution and their transportation to foreign brothels in very exotic, using massive air quotes here, faraway places. Now, commentators talking about this traffic in women in the Russian context rarely imagine the perpetrator to be ethnically Russian. And in fact, almost exclusively imagine the perpetrators of this crime to be Jews. And actually, this Jewish pimp and procurer and the, the Jew as the sort of architects of white slavery and the traffic in women is a really common trope repeated across Europe and North America in this period. So therefore, these discussions of this sort of new crime of the trade in women were an outlet for voice in these anti-Semitic prejudices in general. And often you find letters in the archives from urban residents in the Pale of Settlement, for example, repeating these tropes back to the authorities about Jewish broth brothel keepers in their area and making claims that they're conducting some kind of international sex trafficking ring with absolutely no evidence for this assertion. So it shows you how they, these discourses are operating at the state level through the popular press and then being repeated by ordinary subjects of the empire when complaining to the authorities. Right. And that kind of makes me, makes one think about how whiteness is perceived or was perceived or perhaps not uh, actively perceived in the Russian empire. I think it's interesting that the term is trade in women as opposed to white slavery, which is what I'm more familiar with. And also this continuous, it's just another sphere in which Jews in the Russian empire were alienated and, and, and cast as outsiders and as these kind of menaces. You also write about how this was not only tied into concerns about morality and greater anxieties about changing populations, but it was also 
touched on matters of national security, kind of using sex and venereal diseases as weapons, so to speak. So I was wondering if you could speak more about what it was like on the front lines, prostitution on the front lines, and how that got spun in the popular presses, as well as being this kind of scheme, infecting soldiers deliberately and by infecting these bodies, inherently infecting the empire. Absolutely. So registered prostitutes get caught up in this kind of explosion of spy mania during the First World War in Russia. So spy mania is this period where accusations of espionage are thrown around like exponentially to generals, military generals, but also to specific ethnic groups within the population. So local authorities held accusations of treason um, and enacted brutal policies of deportation and expulsion during the First World War, primarily towards ethnic Germans and Jews. And prostitution also gets mixed up in this too. So in 1915, the army's chief of staff issues this order talking about this German Jewish organization that's paying women who are infected with syphilis to then pretend to be prostitutes and have sex with Russian officers and infect them in order to compromise Russia's line of defense. And then the army's department of intelligence also monitors ethnic German and Jewish women who are working as prostitutes in Warsaw in this period too claiming that they're politically unreliable and that they need to be deported from the city in order to protect national security. Accusations of these kinds really provided state officials and people in the army with a justification for Russia's continued military failures in this period. And socially marginal groups like women engaged in paid sex, um, ethnic Germans and Jews are really convenient scapegoat for, for these kind of failures. And also during the First World War, various local governments took quite drastic measures to protect national security that were targeted against women who were engaged in paid sex. So in 1915, in the cities of Yorev, which is now Tartu in Estonia, and in Riga, which is now Latvia's capital, the respective police chiefs issued deportation orders of hundreds of women who were registered as prostitutes. Um, I should also mention at this time, the surrounding provinces of Vilna and Kordland, which now comprise northern Lithuania and southern Latvia had just been invaded by the Germans. So this is a particularly panicky period in the Baltics. And anyway, these orders are issued and I actually managed to find the order in the archive and look at the names of the women and they're all ethnic Germans and Jewish names. So it's um, again, probably an outlet for anti-Semitic and anti-German sentiments during wartime. And so were these women just trying, were they just trying to move them away from the front to some other part in the Russian Empire or move them out of the Russian Empire entirely? So great question, actually, just move them out of that particular province, which is so interesting to me because in other international histories of these kind of deportations of sex workers, it's removal from the, the country, the nation, the empire. But in the Russian empire, it's just expulsion, just expulsion. I don't mean it like that, but it's expulsion within the territory of the empire. And you can find where the women were sent and they were actually allowed to choose which province that they were meant to go to. There's um, lots of forms about this in the Latvian state archives. So it seems to be quite a well-planned deportation order. But again, there's a huge gulf between theory and reality because... A couple of months after the orders issued, the police admit that they haven't really enforced it and they have no real means to enforce it in the context of war. So is there any indication at all that if these women, you know, if it was actually enforced and they were actually relocated, that they were then surveilled? Because they would be in a new area, it would be under a new jurisdiction. 
I think so. Yeah, I'd have to go to the archives of that particular place, but that's given me a lot of, um, of ideas for tracing up these stories in the future. And another question, I don't want to spend too much time on this particular topic, but these women who moved, would any of them go to similar places or band together? Or was it just kind of like just complete dispersal? I did find quite a few women went to Kiev and that seemed to be quite a popular destination. Lots of them just go to the interior provinces, the empire. Some go to some Siberian cities like Krasnoyarsk and Irkutsk. And I wonder if it's more generally following the patterns of population displacement in the First World War. So just getting to a place of safety out of the direct line of conflict. But we don't actually have evidence that these women actually ended up there. Maybe they didn't make the journey. Maybe they went somewhere different or maybe they, as the police claim, hid themselves in Riga and just managed to remain there for the whole of the war. But there doesn't seem to be, other than Kiev, I can't see places that come up time and time again. They're just absolutely all over the place. Something that this state was in, very invested in was differentiating these women who sold sex from the rest of the female population. So can you speak to some of the ideas and stereotypes that were held by authorities and upper-class observers that linked this presence, this visible presence with like morality, immorality, and particular behaviors that these women should, should take on because of their statuses as prostitutes. So yeah, exactly right. The regulation of prostitution kind of speaks to broader ideas about gender, morality, and sexuality that are in circulation at this time. And I think one thing it really does is institutionalize this idea of the sexual double standard, which just to give an example, is the idea that men are able and encouraged to have sex outside of marriage, but women are actively discouraged. And if they're engaged in sex outside of marriage, risk being identified as a prostitute by the authorities and then being forced to register on the beast lists and having to abide by a whole host of restrictions. So this is something that the regulation system really underwrites because the whole thing's kind of an outlet for male heterosexual desire. And it reinforces the idea that female bodies require policing um, in order to protect wider public health. But also there's this really core idea that's central to the regulation system is that prostitution's a necessary evil. So it's something that's quite unpleasant, but something that is inevitable and necessary in society. So therefore, we need to limit the kind of damage that prostitution can do to public health and morality by ensuring that registered prostitutes are under police surveillance and attend medical examinations, but also limiting their visibility in urban space. So only allowing them to live within certain districts, forbidding them from walking on the streets at particular times, and making sure that brothels are only in specific state-approved locations. And it is this idea that if a moral person using air quotes there is to witness prostitution then somehow they will be subject to moral decline and it will cause some kind of chaos in society so therefore we just need to limit its visibility it's unpleasant but it's necessary so therefore we have to do some kind of damage control and then i guess i i wanted you to touch a little bit more on kind of this idea that you could not always tell just by looking at someone if they were a prostitute because there's this anxiety about prostitutes being able to afford these luxury items and then somehow disguise themselves as quote-unquote respectable upper-class women. And so I was wondering if you could speak a little more to the stereotypes that were associated with this kind of like lust for a better life or social upward mobility 
so to speak? Yeah, definitely. So the regulation system is all about dividing women, as you said before, into this binary of debauched prostitutes on the one hand, honest women on the other, and they are completely separate and seen as yeah, completely different from one another. And there's great anxiety that the debauched prostitutes are passing as honest women by wearing specific types of clothing um, and behaving in specific ways. And I think the what you said about wearing particular kinds of clothes and this sort of desire for upward social mobility is something that really, really concerns commentators um, or educators, observers in the Russian context. It's this idea that women are selling sex simultaneously to escape poverty, but also because they just want to wear nice dresses. And it's this really paternalistic and quite patronizing view of the women engaged in prostitution and also reveals anxieties about the crossing of class boundaries and how people should be kept within their specific category in the social estate system and not able to pass for something that they're not. So I think it reveals anxieties about gender, about class and about morality too. I watched this video the other day and it kind of made me think about your book. Uh, it was about uh, beauty marks of all things and how in the 1700s in France, it was all the rage to wear fake beauty marks. And then lower class women were copying the upper class women wearing beauty marks. And suddenly it became this kind of like uncouth, very like unpopular thing to do because the lower classes had taken this like aesthetic. And so I was wondering if, if that also, you know, fed into these anxieties about like not only the prostitutes being um, bad people, but also, you know, being able to be these kind of like shapeshifters and, mm -hmm. you know, not being able to tell who's who. I also was curious if you could speak a little more about how prostitution was thought to be exclusively heterosexual and if you found any information in your works in the archives about possible homosexual or same-sex prostitution. So the regulation of prostitution really reinforces this like wider patriarchal and heteronormative norms. So in the legislation, prostitution is defined solely as a transaction that can only happen between a female prostitute and a male client. But that's not what actually happened in reality. Finding examples of same-sex prostitution is really challenging because it's not even conceptualized as prostitution in officialdom's eyes. So in the archives, I actually didn't find any discussions of this whatsoever, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And Dan Healy's work, for example, has shown that same-sex prostitution was absolutely a phenomenon in late Imperial Russia, and that the bathhouse in particular was a location where this would happen quite frequently. But I think the problem is because the definition is so rigid in the legislation, it's just not, it wouldn't be in the files that I was particularly looking at. And to find examples of same-sex prostitution, you'd have to be looking more at medical texts, perhaps, or police reports in specific locations like the bathhouse or in parks. So not as visible in the archives for my particular project, but definitely, definitely a thing in the Imperial Russia. I think you mentioned something about, for brothels in particular, controlling the types of guests who came, well, controlling and making sure that no women came in in order to kind of curb the possibility of having women pay for sex with women. But other than that, it's kind of scant. Yeah, but I, I guess it's about reading against the sources and that particular regulation when I found it in the archives really intrigued me. Because it, it just made me wonder why, why would you be so bothered about prohibiting other women from entering the brothel? Is it because of a concern about morality and moral decline? 
or is it because same-sex prostitution was maybe more common than we imagined? And you have to do a lot of this when you're doing any type of historical work, right, is reading between the lines and also, you know, kind of using all this other information that doesn't perhaps specifically focus on this topic, but all this other stuff, wealth of knowledge that you have and piecing together the parts, right? And I think that's really fun um, and really interesting. I wanted to also ask if there was any other particular area that has remained unanswered for you, at least for the time being, or any you know, avenue that you would kind of want to pursue more within this topic. I was really interested in the issue of same-sex prostitution. And it's something that I really wish I would have had more time to dig around in all of these different places. So that's something that really intrigued me. But also I'm really, really interested in the personal and familial lives of registered prostitutes. Didn't find much evidence about registered prostitutes being mothers or much information about their relationships just because these sort of files just don't exist. People don't produce ego documents necessarily when they work in these kind of industries. And that is something that I find absolutely fascinating and would have liked to have known a lot more about what people's ordinary lives were like. Where did they actually come from? What was their family situation like before they became registered on the police lists? Just these really tantalizing questions that I'd love to maybe in the future research in more detail. Absolutely. I actually wrote that down if prostitutes were married, because this idea that only men can have sex outside of marriage. Well, what if a a prostitute happened to be married? But yeah, curious about who they were, where they came from, what their family lives were like, because you wouldn't, if it was a prostitute who was in a brothel, you wouldn't be able to house a family in those Mm -hmm. small rooms and whatnot. And there's statistical evidence. There's these big statistical surveys that are conducted on prostitution. There's one in 1889 and 1909. And they do capture sort of data about how many women um, report that they're married. But you can't really get much from these numbers and you can't really see how things varied across the empire. So it's the kind of thing that I'd love to have more sources to research. But yeah, maybe one day. I'm kind of in the similar vein. I'm wondering, though, there probably were on planned pregnancies that happened. So was did you come across any materials talking about what would happen if a prostitute got pregnant and what would happen to the child if it were carried to term? So not a lot of information, but I do know from the official rules of regulation that if a registered prostitute fell pregnant, she was supposed to stop working. So she wasn't allowed to work when she was pregnant. But again, the theory and practice is probably a huge gulf there. It's just something that we just don't have the sources on. And I know that there's some rudimentary efforts at birth control practice within brothels. There's these devices for vaginal douching that are meant to be available in every brothel, which was presumed to be some kind of form of birth control, but obviously based on what we know in the 21st century, probably wildly ineffective. But women who engaged in paid sex must have had methods for preventing pregnancy. And it's, again, a fascinating question. And I really wish we had the sources to to answer this kind of thing. Right. If only we could go back in time and, <laughs> and, and record totally. some things there. Yeah. I want to pivot a little bit to kind of talking about the end of regulation and prostitution in the in Imperial Russian and kind of talk about how there were some continuities some similarities that carried from um, imperial Russia into the communist and Soviet approaches to prostitution, because one would think that they'd be vastly different, but you actually write about how that's not exactly the case. So if you wouldn't mind speaking to that a little bit. 
Of course, yeah. So the stigmatization of women engaged in paid sex is something that is everlasting across regime collapse, revolution, war, all of these kind of things. So therefore, like mapping prostitution histories onto political histories is it's kind of futile. It seems to be something that outlasts regimes. And that's a, an area where I see a lot of continuity between the late imperial and the early Soviet period. But there are some things that are different. So regulation is abolished by the provisional government following the February Revolution, but they don't really have the time or resources to get started on a new state approach before the Bolsheviks seize power in October 1917. And then the Bolsheviks come to power with their very own, very specific interpretations of prostitution and their own approaches to, to solving the problem. So they largely ascribe to Marxist interpretations of prostitution as a manifestation of women's economic and political inequality under capitalism. And they professed a desire to completely eradicate it from society through the introduction of socialism and providing women with paid employment, providing them with political equality and tackling what they perceive to be the, the root causes. So poverty is number one, illiteracy and women's financial dependence on men. Very optimistically, key Bolsheviks thought or claimed that once socialism had been achieved, prostitution would completely disappear because there would be no need for women to engage in paid sex because the state had met all of their needs. Now, the first criminal code in 1922 doesn't criminalise the sale of sex at all, but it does criminalise pimping and brothel keeping. So the people who profit from prostitution are now the source of state intervention. But the stigmatization of women engaged in paid sex means that these very lofty ideals just aren't realized in the Soviet Union. Sex workers, as they were in the late imperial period, continue to be presented as vectors of venereal infection. And um, in health propaganda, they're kind of vilified as a sort of anti-Soviet, as people who are working against the goals of society. And when former sex workers didn't conform to specific ideals of what a redeemable woman should be. So someone who's ashamed of their past engagement in prostitution and really grateful to the Soviet state for the opportunity to change, they were demonized as work shakers and parasites. And this is in the 1920s and this just continues and amplifies as, as the Soviet period continues. But one thing to note though is throughout the entire Soviet period, prostitution is not a crime. Women who sold sex could not be criminalized for that particular activity. But the Soviet approach to prostitution is de facto criminalization because women who engage in paid sex are targeted through other legislation. So legislation governing vagrancy, the passport regime, also the transmission of venereal infections is criminalized in the Soviet period. And in the Russian Federation today, actually, it's the same law. So women are prosecuted under these laws. And then the government claims that prostitution doesn't exist because socialism has solved the problem. also speak a little bit more about the labor dispensaries. I found that super fascinating. Yeah, of course. They're so interesting. So labor dispensaries are these institutions that are set up um, in Soviet Russia from the early 1920s, specifically to reform former prostitutes, basically to redeem them as productive Soviet citizens. And it's really underscoring this Marxist interpretation of prostitution as this product of women's, um, the devaluation of women's labor and women's inequality under capitalism. So these institutions are 
set up for women who are former prostitutes and they're meant to provide them with lodging, emotional support, also the opportunity to learn a trade and of course a, a lovely dose of Soviet propaganda. And yeah, these were open for the whole of the 1920s and some of them into the 1930s as well. It's difficult to get to how successful they were. I've tried to research this quite a bit. And again, it's a lot of reading against the reading against the grain. The Soviet government really likes to push that these are incredibly successful and the sort of a flagship project of this um, campaign to eradicate prostitution. So when foreign doctors visit Moscow in the late 1920s and 1930s are taken to labor dispensaries on them um, as part of their tour to show like Soviet approaches to social problems. But then reading the transcripts of conferences that were held for former residents of the dispensaries, it shows quite a different story. It shows that if, you know, if women weren't willing to change in the way that the state wanted them to, then the outcomes were quite different. And often the stigmatization just continued even after a woman had been in a labor dispensary for a particular period. But yeah, they're so interesting. And there's a film from 1927 called A Prostitute Killed by Life, which half of it is set in a labor dispensary. It's really, really interesting. So this unwillingness to change, is that one of the reasons why women would either be kind of kicked out? I think I read, if I'm remembering correctly, that they could be kicked out of labor dispensaries or leave early. Is that part of the bad behavior I think you, you said it was? Yeah, so not wanting to engage in the tasks that were happening in the dispensary. And some of the tasks are quite arduous and <laughs> mind-numbingly boring. Engaging in needlework for hours and hours for the day and very rigid schedule about the times that you wake up. Also prohibited from socialising with people from your old life. Um, so cut off from those old support networks that you might have had before entering the dispensary. And although, of course, these institutions would have provided emotional support and crucial support really for women and maybe would have been extremely beneficial for certain women, it's not really a one-size-fits-all model in terms of exiting prostitution. And yeah, this is one of the reasons that people could be kicked out. Not enough commitments to the activities of the dispensary. But also, um, as you write, kind of boiling it down to being a, an economic and a moral issue. So not taking into account the complex, sometimes perhaps even convoluted reasons why these women would even enter into prostitution or wanted to stay in this line of work. And so I think something that you, you hit the nail on the head, so to speak, this inherent tension of simultaneously advocating welfare while repressing these women, in a sense. And that's something that carries on from the imperial period as well. Definitely, yeah, absolutely. I think one thing to take away from this across the late imperial and the Soviet periods is women who engaged in paid sex are always symbolic of something. So symbolic of the ills of modernity, of female emancipation sometimes, but also of the sort of stubborn remnants of the capitalist past and women's inherent <laughs> frivolity and silliness and you know, desire to engage in prostitution even when presented with, according to the, the Soviet state, viable economic alternatives. So I think it's, it's difficult for the Russian imperial state and for the Soviet state to see women who engaged in paid sex as human beings who make choices that are complicated based on a variety of different personal factors, social and economic factors. So yeah, they're definitely symbolic and sort of used as something to project your fears and anxieties onto in terms of policy rather than actually engage with and, and speak to the people who are engaging in prostitution and find out the kind of things that would help them exit the industry. But that's something that continues in the present day too. 
in Russia or generally speaking? Yeah, I think internationally, <laughs> like listening to sex workers seems to be something that policymakers find quite difficult in a variety of different international contexts. Do you have any interest in studying sex work in Russia today, in present day? I find it absolutely fascinating. There's some really great research um, already being conducted on this. And there's some fantastic organisations that work in Russia and um, other countries of the former Soviet Union with sex workers. But yeah, I, I love thinking about the, the sort of parallels between work that I'm doing on 100 years ago and what's happening today. And quite depressingly, how similar a lot of the conversations are that we're people are having about prostitution at the state level so yeah it's 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 terrifying the the continuity across across centuries history repeats itself it does it's cheesy but it does <laughs> so your book centers on regulation in northwest regions of russia in the imperial period do you would you have any recommendations for people who are keen on learning about prostitution in other areas of the empire yeah, definitely. So off the top of my head, there's Keely Stout-Halstead's book, The Devil's Chain, um, which is about prostitution in partition Poland. So she looks um, at the Russian Empire and um, the Polish lands in the Russian Empire and has some really fascinating things to say about um, the regulation of prostitution, the discussion of prostitution in civil society in the Polish context. Also, Ineta Liebscher has written about Latvia quite extensively from the First World War into the interwar period as well, which is really, really interesting. So I will say those two and maybe I can produce a handy list <laughs> for, um, for other regions of the empire. But I, I wanted to ask, kind of wrapping up here, uh, if there was anything that I missed or a key point in your book that you wanted to reiterate or bring up. Well, your questions have been fantastic and I feel like we've covered loads of ground, but I'll just reiterate that it's just really, really complicated, which is quite a boring <laughs> argument to make overall, but reactions to prostitution like any social phenomena are really complicated and really vary across social, ethnic, religious class lines. And I think that's the main message of my book, really. Ordinary people engage with these discourses on prostitution, sexuality, morality and gender in really complicated ways. So therefore, I'd always resist any kind of simple categorization about how people felt about prostitution in late Imperial Russia. So yeah, the very unsatisfying, it's complicated. No, I enjoy that. I think it's, it's, um, it's not just a kind of, it's complicated. It's complicated and that has a little asterisk with it and reasons why it's complicated. <laughs> so I think that's a really perfect answer. But before I let you go, I did want to ask, the dreaded question at least I dread it what's next are you working on uh, something in a similar vein or have you totally pivoted away from from this so I'm currently working on a project about military masculinity so it's a little bit related but a little bit different it's in the same period so I'm looking at how the ideal soldier and sailor was constructed in official military and medical discourse in the early 20th century in Russia and then how ordinary soldiers and sailors experienced and resisted these kind of categorizations. And I'm looking at it from four different sort of key themes. So the first one is in relation to sexuality, which is quite an easy sidestep from this project. But I'm also looking at discussions of disability, nutrition and physical culture. So somewhat related, but also going off in some different angles. But yeah, I got really interested in masculinity when I was writing the chapter about clients. 
and thinking about the different ways in which masculinity is constructed and resisted in Imperial Russia. So that's what I'm hoping to continue with this project. And I wonder with the materials that you're working with on this new project, do you have a, the military records have, um, you know, information about people's ethnicities, right? Um, And so that I think, you know, that is super interesting for me um, because I'm interested in race and ethnicity and kind of how they, in the Russian context, the Russian imperial context, Soviet context, and now are kind of used synonymously at certain points or how they kind of meld together as well. Uh, That's really interesting for talking about wellness and health. Again, we return to this idea of particular people are inherently dirty or inherently prone to particular diseases because of their ethnicity and their culture and their perceived backwardness, right? Absolutely. And before COVID, I was planning on doing research in Georgia and Kazakhstan. So to look at garrisons there um, and also some other like European provinces of the empire to kind of tease out that importance of local cultures to ideas about wellness and hygiene um, and how they vary across the empire. But I don't know, we'll see, maybe in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but Dr. Hearn, I wanted to reiterate that it was such a pleasure to have you on today. And do you have any questions for me, perhaps? What is your project? Tell me more about your project. Oh, (laughs) So I'm finishing up my thesis. I'm writing about uh, race in Yakutia, so in the Sahara Republic, um, kind of looking at how ideas of race and ethnicity and belonging intersect. Um, And I'm looking at it contemporarily, but also having some historical background, um, you know, because you have to know the the history of a place, right? Um, And the dynamics there. That sounds fabulous. I can't wait to hear whatever you, I can't wait to read whatever you write. That sounds wonderful. What a great project. Um, I'll stop my recording now. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you.